This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Saeed Al-Madoun lives in Gaza. After some effort, our producer Dan Ackerman was able to connect with him last night over an unstable WhatsApp connection. Yes, hello? Unfortunately, I have a very poor internet connection due to the current situation and the current circumstances. Uh, but if you are hearing me well, I can uh, uh, describe you a little bit about the humanitarian situation currently in Gaza. Are you, are you hearing me well? Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. It's been just over one month since Israel's retaliatory bombardment of Gaza began. Syed told us that his first most urgent need was to try to keep his children safe and calm. His oldest child is 12, the youngest one year old. So every time they were overwhelmed by the sounds of bombs exploding or ambulances rushing by, Syed tried to make a game of it for his five young children. I tried to to inform them, let's try to, to make some games together when we are hearing bombardment. It's like the, the, the games in the sky. Don't worry, things will be calm down soon. Our home is very safe. We try to minimize the issue for them in order to be more comfortable. But unfortunately, we didn't succeed because things are out of our hands, honestly. The damage across Gaza has been extensive. Anywhere from 18 to 25 percent of all structures in Gaza have been destroyed or damaged. That's up to 51,000 buildings, according to various estimates of satellite images. Among the hardest-hit areas, Gaza City, in the north of the enclave, where Saeed's family lived. There was a warning that uh, we will destroy the, the building near to my house. So I moved directly from my house to my brother's house in the same uh, city in the Gaza. After I just arrived in my brother's house, the, the building beside my original house was destroyed. That meant that Saad's house was also seriously damaged. It became uninhabitable. Three days later... Israel ordered more than a million people to evacuate to southern Gaza. Saeed, his wife, and five children fled to his uncle's home in Khan Yunus, near Gaza's southern border with Egypt, where he is now. In this flat, we have more than 30, 30 people. Some people are sleeping on the floor. Some people uh, said, I didn't need to sleep. I will uh, wake up so I can inform you of things happening. If there is any emergency situation around us, because to be honest, to be honest, there is no safer place. Saad told us that the basic necessities of life, such as water, are getting harder to come by. Uh, again, please, I went anywhere. Uh, now I am in Canuris. We are suffering out in bringing, in bringing the drinking water. Because the water resources is very limited, and most of the water treatment and water bombing are operating using the fuel, and the fuel is not allowed to enter Gaza. So we have a uh, very uh, hard situation in bringing water. 
He told us that he does have something of a water supply now because he's buying it from a private company that's charging triple the regular price. The same goes for bread. He says Gazans in Khan Yunis are going to extraordinary lengths to find food in any bakery that's open. Many are not, because some bakeries have been destroyed. Others do not have enough fuel or power to stay open. And sometimes it takes us about five hours or more in a long queue to bring the, the bread to the, from, from the bakery to, to, to our houses. Five hours in line to buy bread. Saeed says once they get it, though, they can't eat it with hot meals cooked at home. We are not able to make any cooking because gas is not available. We are bringing some of the canned food, but it is currently most of the canned food uh, is not available in the supermarket. I am personally trying to minimize uh, my meals to one meal in order to save things for the kids. Again, because of that unstable WhatsApp connection, what Saad said is that he's personally trying to minimize his meals to one meal a day in order to save things for his children. Trucks and cars have long since run out of fuel in Gaza. People move around by foot or on bicycle. Some use donkeys to carry home whatever rations they can find. The electricity grid is down, though Saad says he's lucky because his uncle has solar panels. And that's how he was able to charge his phone, turn on the lights, and speak with us. A month into the fighting between Israel and Hamas, Israeli ground forces have encircled and entered Gaza City. And Israeli leaders are promising to complete their stated mission to eradicate Hamas. Saad al-Maldun has a unique perspective on the crisis in Gaza now. Not only because he's one of more than a million Gazans who've been internally displaced by this war, he's also Gaza humanitarian coordinator for Care International. And he says that even he is wondering how long he will have to make a game out of the sound of exploding bombs in order to comfort his children. Honestly, honestly, I am worried because we didn't know when this war would be ended. I feel uh, worried because uh, I am worried about my children because they are not feeling safe at any time and they have some uh, psychosocial problem due to the current uh, situation. Uh, but I, feel, I think there is a window for a hope. I think we still have some hope in the future that this critical crisis will be ended soon. Saad al-Madun. He spoke with us last night from southern Gaza. More than 10,000 people in Gaza have been killed since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Scores more are injured, and more than 1.4 million, like Saad, displaced from their homes. The World Health Organization is now warning of rampant outbreaks of respiratory infections, diarrhea, chickenpox, and scabies. At a meeting... In Paris this week, there is discussion of opening a maritime corridor to bring goods into Gaza and injured people out by boat. Separate talks are going on between Israel and Hamas about a possible three-day pause in the fighting to allow for more aid to enter Gaza and for some hostages to be freed. How significantly, if at all, will any of this change the humanitarian crisis on the ground? Well, Maria Abi Habib joins us. She's an investigative correspondent for The New York Times. She's been covering the situation in Gaza. Maria, welcome to On Point. 
Thank you for having me. So first of all, tell us a little bit more uh, about what you know or have seen about the humanitarian situation in Gaza now. Well, I mean, the humanitarian situation is as dire as anyone can imagine. Um, I mean, having covered large-scale offenses during the Arab Spring, for instance, Aleppo, we have seen the destruction of of an entire population center, not in months, not in years, as in most major wars like Chechnya or Aleppo or any of the ones that, you know, really come to mind um, over the last decade or two or three. Um, this is the destruction of entire territory, uh, uh, you know, or large chunks of this territory, um, major population centers, in a matter of weeks, really. Mm-hmm. It is as bad as you think. There are at least 10,000 dead. And people say, you know, I mean, aid organizations say, ones that we trust in every other war um, have said that it's much more than 10,000 people probably mm. because there are hundreds of people buried under rubble. We're talking about entire city blocks mm. just coming down um, with, uh, you know, with with Israeli strikes, for instance, um, and uh, and, you know, the Israelis will say, well, Hamas uses the, you know, hides among the civilian population. Um, but others will say that's not really true. That's just an excuse to justify um, uh, the airstrikes. Yeah. Maria, so, may, may um, I just jump in here for a second? In a terrible situation. Sorry, to, I'm yeah. very sorry to interrupt there. But you've also reported extensively and, and quite recently on uh, the health care infrastructure in Gaza, uh, that Gazan hospitals are essentially in a state of collapse. Can you tell me more about uh, about that? Sure. So you have everything from brain surgeries to um, actual amputation of limbs uh, happening uh, for children, the elderly, um, and everything in between without anesthetic. You have people using vinegar because they have run out of other disinfectants. Um, you have people being operated on, in some cases, on tile floors because they've run out of hospital beds. Um, and then you also have um, doctors having to make this very difficult choice, which they get very sensitive about because they took the Hippocratic Oath, just like every other doctor in every other country in this world, um, to, to do their utmost to save people. But they are faced with this terrible choice. We only have so many hands and we only have so many supplies. Who gets what? Who dies? Who lives? Um, at some point, you know, somebody will come in with um, uh, needing CPR, and they'll assess how far gone they are in, in, in cardiac arrest and say, we don't have the ability to resuscitate you. So oftentimes they're not even able to resuscitate um, heart patients, uh, you know, people who are suffering from a heart attack. Um, so it's really a mixture of horrible choices. And then as if the strain on Gaza's hospitals are not enough, considering that there's also a lot of people who have been, who've lost their homes and are now living outside, um, you know, inside the hospitals. There are also now these temporary orphanages because there are quite a few children who are showing up, watching their kids, their their parents and their siblings die in the hospital, or they show up the only surviving family member. And then the hospital all of a sudden is taking care of an orphan child, waiting for extended family members to come and claim them. Um, it's it's the worst. It's one of the worst situations I've ever seen as a as a conflict correspondent. Mm. Uh, so Maria, hold on for just a moment because there's another question I want to ask you on the other side of the break. We're talking today about the reality of the humanitarian crisis on the ground in Gaza and what, if anything, can be done to relieve it. So we'll be back in just a moment. This is on point.
Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about the humanitarian crisis on the ground in Gaza. Maria Abi Habib joins us. She's a correspondent for The New York Times who's reported extensively uh, from Gaza. And as Maria's reporting has uh, re- has shown us, the hospital and healthcare infrastructure in Gaza is basically in a state of collapse, uh, including the fact that, uh, as Maria is has reported, uh, because uh, telecommunications infrastructure has been cut off by Israeli bombing. Oftentimes, uh, Gazan ambulance drivers say they can't communicate with each other and have to chase the sound of explosions in order to know how and where to get to the injured. Now, in addition to that, of course, there are basic necessities that every hospital needs to operate uh, or to function normally, including power, fuel, and clean water. Now, on the point of the water, Gaza typically gets just 10% of its drinking water from Israel via pipeline. The other 90% is produced in Gaza itself. And that becomes a major issue, of course, when the electric grid goes down or is destroyed and fuel supplies are low. Dr. Eli Reddig researches energy geopolitics at Bar Ilan University in Israel. And during a press briefing last week, he described the cascading impacts of power outages in Gaza. Your main problem is now water, because water needs continuous electricity, either from the grid or from desalination plants that have their own um, small scale diesels, diesel generators. So this is... This is where things get complicated, the connection between electricity, diesel, and water. Now, Dr. Reddig also said that when it comes to that original importance of fuel and diesel to power everything from lights to water in Gaza, he talked about Hamas's potential stockpile of diesel fuel, and that likely includes fuel it took, that Hamas took, from Gaza's only power plant. The power plant should have a minimum of 500,000 liters at any given time. If on the first day that Israel cut it off, Hamas already said that it's out of uh, diesel for the power plant, it means that they depleted the diesel themselves, which means they have something like 500,000 just from the power plant. Other than that, we've had reports about diesel being stolen from other facilities. Now, Dr. Reddig also noted that a half a million liters of diesel is enough to run that power plant for three to four days. Same amount of fuel could run Gaza's biggest drinking water desalination plant for about a week. Maria, you have reported on um, the existence and size of this uh, Hamas stockpile. What can, what more can you tell us about it? 
So, um, so uh, by most people's estimates, including the Israelis, it seems that there is a stock that that Hamas has stockpiled between eight hundred thousand to a million liters of of um, fuel. But we should note that the uh, World Health Organization has said that ninety four, about a hundred thousand liters, are needed to just run twelve of Gaza's biggest hospitals. That does not include needs for bakeries. That does not include needs, um, fuel needs for um, desalination plants so that people can drink fresh water, for instance. So even with the stockpile that Hamas sits on, which is real and significant, um, it still wouldn't be enough to meet Gaza's needs for more than a week at best. Um, so uh, there is still the need, you know, even if Hamas were to give out all of its fuel stocks, as the Israelis have been, you know, uh, asking them to do or challenging them to do, um, Gaza would still need significant fuel uh, from Egypt, for mm-hmm. um, and the Israelis are holding that up. So it's while it is true to say that Hamas is sitting on a stockpile, it is nowhere enough. You know, it's nowhere. It, it would nowhere near meet the meet needs of of Gaza and its everyday. Um, Um, Right. Right. Point uh, well taken. Mm -hmm. Point well taken. Uh, Simultaneously, though, has Hamas made any indication of releasing even a part of the stockpile it has? No, they have not. Um, um, As you can, you know, maybe imagine, it's not the easiest to get a hold of people from Hamas right now. Mm. Um, But no, they have not. So they have been pushing on the on the humanitarian aid aspect and allowing the wounded. Uh, the severely wounded to leave Gaza for medical attention in Egypt. Well, Maria Abi Habib, reporter for the New York Times, correspondent for the New York Times, who's reported extensively on conflicts around the world, including what's going on right now on the ground in Gaza. Maria, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So... At least 89 United Nations workers have been killed in Gaza so far. And that's according to a speech given on Monday by U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres. He also said not nearly enough aid is getting into Gaza. Just over 400 trucks have crossed into Gaza over the past two weeks, compared with 500 a day before the conflict. And crucially, this does not include fuel. Without fuel, newborn babies in incubators and patients on life support will die. Water cannot be pumped or purified. Raw sewage could soon start gushing onto the streets, further spreading disease. Trucks loaded with critical relief will be stranded. The way forward is clear. A humanitarian ceasefire now. That's the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres on Monday. Well, joining us now from Ramallah on the West Bank is Hiba Tibi. She's country director for Care International in the West Bank and in Gaza. Hiba, welcome to On Point. Thank you so much, Magna. It's, it's really an honor to be with you today. Can you tell us more about what your colleagues and um, other Gazans that you've been able to be in contact with are telling us about the current situation that they're living through right now? Uh, this question becomes every time asked harder and harder to answer. 
I think everyone here what Saad mentioned, and it is not different from what others are telling us. Um, unfortunately, uh, the colleagues were telling us that they are afraid that they are very close to come to the last drop of water, last drop of fuel, last loaf of bread. And this is the situation now in Gaza. Um, it was already hard over the last week, but it's almost impossible now to find bread in certain areas. Uh, and I'm talking about the South. All of my team evacuated to the South. Mm. My partners are also working in the South, but the situation is even harder in the North. There are many people who did not leave. Hundred uh, thousand, hundred thousands people are still in the north where they are under constant shelling, uh, unable to find food, water. Uh, of course, fuel is is missing everywhere, and of course, access to medical services is really becoming very, very hard. Mm-hmm. Now, you make the distinction between um, southern Gaza and northern Gaza. I presume for a couple of reasons. One is that the uh, Israeli military told Gazans to to move south, right? And so therefore the implication being that the humanitarian uh, crisis would be less intense there versus uh, the fact that Gaza City in the north is being currently encircled by um, IDF forces. But you're saying that it that it's bad in the south too. How does this compare to other um, wartime uh, or escalations that Care International um, has uh, has had to deal with in, in past conflicts in Gaza? So only in September, just before the war, we have carried out a regular exercise that we normally do on annual basis. It's called emergency preparedness plan. And um, Magna, you take the worst case scenario and you design your intervention around it. Our worst case scenario was 19 for 2014 um, escalation, but it is nothing, nothing close to what we are seeing now. The situation is is something that we have never foreseen or get, got prepared for. It's not only care, but this is the situation with all other other um, organizations, peer organizations. We attend what we call working clusters that are run by the UN agencies. And everyone is really trying to find out how we are going to do that. We ask uh, how we are going to intervene, I mean. We ask also, for instance, care colleagues who came up with most innovative solutions under under similar circumstances, like for instance, in Yemen, within the wartime, or in Turkey with such a huge scale. But what we face here in Gaza is very unique, where you don't have, where the the blockade on on uh, on humanitarian assistance makes it extremely difficult the lack of resources for basic humanitarian need is is also is massive for instance as we as as um, as you were mentioning the electricity fuel water even before war water was 97% of the water in gaza was not drinkable um the huge number of people being internally displaced from the north to the south is not only shocking for the resources in the south but also is 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 um, is making life very difficult for the people themselves where they are overcrowded inside the shelters outdoor 
in the apartments, as you have seen, it was among the very lucky people to be in an apartment with 30 people. One of my colleagues is staying with 120 people and they are unable to. She told me we have cues for everything. Cue to use the restroom, cue to go to sleep, cue to go out, out of the house. You know, all of these these changes and the um the sudden uh, lack of basic needs make everything very, very difficult for them to mm. to survive. Plus, the feel of being unsafe. Un- unsafe. Yeah, uh, but Hiba, may I just uh, ask something for for clarification? That you said that it was just in September that was Care International doing some sort of preparedness exercises in in Gaza. Did I hear that correctly? Yes. Okay. Yes. These- Yes, these are annual, regular exercises that we do in in uh, in potential emergency situations and or contexts like the one in in Gaza. I see, and uh, of course, this was before October seventh. So, what what was revealed to you even in that September exercise? So, one of the major issues was related to the health system. Uh-huh. Because one of our biggest our biggest programming in Gaza is around health uh, services. Uh, our focus was was around what we call sexual reproductive health sector. So we work with uh, women, young women, uh, on uh, on their sexual uh, uh, well being, health. Mm-hmm. Um, we take care of women before and after pre and postnatal uh, medical. Uh, services, raising awareness, etc., etc. What was very apparent is that, or very clear, is that the um, the services that are provided is not a like not the the most secured up to date practices already the health system was uh, um was was doing its maximum by that time was not uh, the, the 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 teams were not relaxed in what they are providing uh, the dependency on on uh, importing everything on the uh, markets from abroad, uh, on either from West Bank side or from Egypt side, mm-hmm. made it very clear that any moment, if any tension occurs on the borders, a cut can happen. But there are not lots of stocks. So this was the situation before. But I now see. everything is collapsing in terms of communication, as you mentioned. So, for instance, the doctors themselves themselves or the medical centers the matern that like those that are providing pre and postnatal uh, services they themselves flew uh, evacuated from the north towards the south and now everything is get disconnected completely mm-hmm. disconnected mm-hmm. so hiba you also had said that um what the humanitarian d- disaster in gaza right now is completely different from other major uh, humanitarian crises that Care International has worked with or, or worked in before. You mentioned Yemen, which, of course, that country has been bombarded for years and um, its populace been starved, essentially. I mean, the UN called it that before, before October the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. But Gaza is different because it, it, you cannot get additional supplies into Gaza? So this is one thing. You have the people, all, all of 
like all of the people in Gaza are now in, in need of aid. All of them, they are affected. Normally, you would find teams that would be able to provide support. You will find certain areas that would be unaffected by the escalations. But now it's all the Gaza Strip, all over Gaza Strip. Uh, so these are two things. The third one is that normally, for instance, let's take the worst case scenario, which is the earthquake. In mm. the earthquake, what you were able, Turkey was able at a certain moment to fly human resources, to fly uh, humanitarian assistance to, let's say, Adana or the areas that were affected by the by the earthquake. Now this is not happening. The destruction of Ares passage uh, that links between West Bank and Gaza, which was one area that we used to send our, our supplies in previous escalations, is no longer opening. The, the same is happening with the crossing through Rafah, mm -hmm. uh, with Egyptian border. The ration number of the trucks to enter Gaza makes it very difficult, where it's like People, you refer to it as a drop of the ocean, crumbs of the bread, which is so true because as you could hear, now the number came next to more than 500 trucks since October 21st. But it's the it's the estimation of the daily uh, need mm -hmm. for for immediate and not even sustained immediate uh, response to the survival requirement of the people. Yeah. Well, just so to to clarify what you're referencing, we did play that tape right from the uh, the UN Secretary General who said that before the conflict, 500 trucks a day were coming into Gaza, uh, and in the past two weeks, only 400 trucks have crossed into Gaza total versus the 500 a day that you were talking about. We have about one minute until our next break, Hiba. Um, it seems as if, is Gaza at the point where it's seeing or will see more death due to the lack of clean water, uh, you know, the, the, the lack of food, the uh, hygiene and contamination issues, than possibly more death from that than possibly even the bombing that's been happening? Mm -hmm. It's it's true. These estimations uh, have been uh, announced by World Health Program, uh, w World Health Organization (WHO), that already um, shared a lot about the outbreaking of diseases that are, first of all, uh, coming due to contaminated to the consumption of contaminated water. New types of diseases are occurring because of lack of hygiene practices related to skin, but also those related to uh, um, to breathing, uh, the dust. Uh, the traces of uh, of bombing, and also the um, what is happening due to decaying bodies, yeah. and these are going to be on long run really huge diseases issues. Hiba, hold on for just a moment. We're talking about the humanitarian disaster going on on the ground in Gaza. Hiba Tibi is with us. She's country director for Care International in the West Bank and Gaza. We'll have more in a moment. This is on point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. 
as long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we are talking about the humanitarian crisis on the ground in Gaza and what, if anything, can be done to relieve it. I'm joined today by Hiba Tibi. She's country director for Care International in the West Bank and in Gaza. She's with us from Ramallah in the West Bank. Now, as global calls for a ceasefire grow louder with every passing day, Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the United States is advocating for something different, what it calls humanitarian pauses. Here's what Blinken told reporters on Friday. We need to substantially and immediately increase the sustained flow of humanitarian assistance into Gaza and getting American citizens and other foreign nationals out of Gaza. We believe that each of these efforts would be facilitated by humanitarian pauses, by arrangements on the ground that increase security for civilians and permit the more effective and sustained delivery of humanitarian assistance. That's the Secretary of State Antony Blinken late last week. More recently, according to a report from Axios, President Joe Biden on Monday urged Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to agree to a three-day pause in the fighting. That pause could allow for the release of some hostages by Hamas and allow more aid to enter Gaza. Netanyahu has so far resisted calls for a ceasefire, and here's what he told ABC World News on Tuesday. Well, there'll be no uh, ceasefire, general ceasefire in Gaza without the release of our hostages. As far as tactical little pauses, an hour here, an hour there, we've had them before. I suppose uh, we'll check the circumstances in order to enable uh, goods, humanitarian goods to come in, or our hostages, uh, individual hostages to leave. But I don't think there's going to be a general ceasefire. Uh, It's not that I don't think. I think it will hamper the war effort. It'll hamper our effort to get our hostages out, because the only thing that works on these criminals in Hamas is the military pressure that we're exerting. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Tuesday. Well, joining us now is Marissa Kurma. She's director of the Middle East program at the Wilson Center and is with us from Washington. Marissa, welcome to On Point. Thank you, Marina, for having me. So first of all, right now in France, there's a major meeting of, what, over 50 countries, uh, officials from Western and Arab nations trying to discuss how to provide more aid to Gazan civilians. Uh, There's proposals I'm seeing for the humanitarian maritime corridor that we mentioned at the top of the show, floating field hospitals. Um, What do you hope or think could come out of this uh, meeting of, uh, of officials? Well, the hope is that um, Western um, countries, uh, the United States, and and together in coordination, of course, with the regional 
um, uh, neighbors, uh, primarily Jordan and Egypt, will um, agree on a modus operandi moving forward to increase different points of access for humanitarian aid. Given that Rafah is the only lifeline currently for humanitarian aid, and we've heard from your other guests about the scarcity of aid going in and the deterioration of the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Um, we have to be creative and that is absolutely the time to come up with more solutions. So the hope is that there will be agreement moving forward on various points of access beyond Rafah uh, in order to um, have more presence for medics and um, ensure that necessary humanitarian aid is going in. Mm. Hiba Tibi, let me hear from you uh, on this. As uh, country director for CARE International, you're, you're in the West Bank. Um, do you have any hope for what might emerge from this meeting in France right now? Uh, could uh, significant amounts of aid start coming into Gaza, you think? That will be something that we all hope for and pray for, as this is if we don't have that assistance going to Gaza immediately, this will be, everyone was calling it already a catastrophe. This will be something that we cannot even describe in human human words. Um, creative ideas like what happened with the, with the field hospital in Jordan, the Jordanian field hospital. There were supplies for that specific hospital. And I don't know if there are other other creative ideas that can help. Any help is needed to save lives. This is a survival moment for people on different levels. Medical, water, fuel that is required for them. Mm. Well, you know, in fact, right now I am seeing a report uh, from the White House that Israel is agreeing to four-hour daily humanitarian pauses in the fighting in northern Gaza to allow civilians to flee. That's according to uh, the White House. Four-hour daily humanitarian pauses. It doesn't say anything about allowing humanitarian aid uh, into Gaza, but uh, at least we we have that. I mean, Marissa, is there... I know you, you may just be hearing about this now, but is there any significance to that? I mean, it seems that... Um the uh, American administration's um, di- diplomatic maneuvering with Israel is starting to take some shape. Um, of course, you've mentioned earlier that President Biden has called on Bibi Netanyahu for a few days pause, which is much needed beyond just the humanitarian aid that needs to go in. And of course, the um, safe passage for the hostages and that is all interconnected. All these different efforts are interconnected. There is also psychological impact of daily bombardment um, and and very little time for um, uh, innocent civilians to flee from one point to another. And so um, any of these pauses are crucial. Uh, we've seen similar pauses in the conflict in Yemen. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are um, extremely crucial, particularly when we see the humanitarian situation deteriorate um, on a regular basis, as, as we've also um, heard from Hiba about what could be much worse, given that there are bodies that are still trapped under the rubble that have to be pulled in. You have bodies that are decaying. Um, and those who have um, had uh, to go to emergency rooms and discharged within 10 to 15 minutes because there's such a huge number that needs to be processed on an hourly basis. 
So, so those pauses are, um, you know, a few hours of, of a pause a day could definitely help. But of course, it's nowhere near what yeah. is needed. So I'd like to have you help us understand more about the actual crossings in and out of Gaza. There are not that many of them. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously, the Israelis are not going to allow a lot or if anything, in and out of Gaza right now on, um, you know, the Israeli security border with Gaza. That leaves um, primarily, as you've both mentioned, that Rafah crossing uh, Mm -hmm. between Gaza and Egypt. Can you tell us a a little bit more about Egypt's role here? I mean, why hasn't Egypt allowed or facilitated more humanitarian assistance coming in and out of Gaza? So... um the Rafah, the Rafah border is, as you said, is controlled by Egypt. Uh, the other two border crossings, the Eris crossing, is controlled by Israel. And of course, the with the Hamas unprecedented attack on October 7, there is significant damage done. And for security reasons, the Israelis will not open that border and make it um, an, an access point for um, a humanitarian aid. And so that is the only pressure point also for Egypt, because there are security concerns. They cannot keep uh, the border open. Uh, they fear the like a huge influx of Palestinian refugees. And with that, um, there are, of course, um, memories of the past. Uh, forced displacement is a, a recurring theme in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and the history of the Palestinians. And, you know, starting with 1948, uh, with the expulsion and forced displacement um, of over 700,000 Palestinians into neighboring countries, primarily uh, Jordan and Egypt. And so with that, um, you know, Palestinians refer to this as the Nakba, mm-hmm. or which means the catastrophe. And uh, we've seen other um, expulsions, of course, and forced displacement in 1967. And so far, all of the Palestinian refugees remain in either refugee camps that have morphed into cities and towns, uh, particularly in um, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon. And so this there's no certainty that any of the refugees will go back. So any makeshift camp that will be set up on the Egyptian side, well, first of all, it's a security concern for Egypt. Second of all, um, there's certainly you know lessons learned from history that mm-hmm. so far... Uh, there's an unclear path towards how this war will end and how long it will take for reconstruction. And so there's no such thing as temporary when we're talking about refugee populations. Yes, uh, understood. Um, But I guess what I'm wondering, in addition to that, is that it's not just the flow of people that we're talking about. I'm still having difficulty understanding uh, what the constraints are uh, in the minds of the Egyptian government in in facilitating the inflow of more mm-hmm. actual aid to to Gaza to Gaza through that that Rafa border I mean the Egyptians um, constantly refer to security uh, circumstances and uh, for from their from their point of view there has to be screening of everything that goes in uh, that is also a concern for um, Israelis and uh, and uh, the United States and others. So um, for the humanitarian sector that is f- entirely focused on just getting basic uh, aid in, uh, there there is also a security lens through which many others are looking at this. And this is why it is hampering 
a lot of this opening and closing. I mean, only yesterday it was, you know, the, the crossing was closed again. And so there are, uh, you know, temporary uh, openings and closings. And um, a lot of it has to do from the Egyptian side based on what they're saying on security considerations. And so um, it is, it's, it's a convoluted situation where it's not just a matter of opening the border and bringing in all the needed um, aid trucks. And I this see. is... This is um, a, a time of war. Um, there are, uh, you know, other considerations with regards to where Hamas militants are and how and and where they could be and how all of that um, impacts the delivery of aid. Is aid being diverted, for example? Those are all concerns that many have raised. But of course, you're looking at. Um, uh, primarily security concerns in this regard. Mm-hmm. Um, Hiba Tibi, I'm going to come back to you in just a moment. But uh, Marissa, now that we're seeing at least more, much more public discussion of somehow achieving enough of a humanitarian pause that could potentially allow for more aid uh, to come in. I'm not even going to talk about a ceasefire uh, just yet. That seems premature. But how do you think, uh, what would realistically need to happen for that aid to actually get to Gazans? Well, there has to be um, a lot of coordination with various actors. Um, Hiba mentioned the Jordanian Field Hospital as a leading example of how that could happen. Uh, If there are other ideas uh, with the maritime border, for example, Mm -hmm. It, it requires coordination with those who will be providing, um, you know, whether it's a field hospital or it's a humanitarian uh, uh, humanitarian aid brought in. So it's a coordination game at this point with various international organizations, as well as various um, state actors, primarily from the region um, and from those Western governments in the United States who will also be um, part of the, part of uh, bringing aid in, or perhaps even providing some of the um, military fields, uh, hosp- uh, military hospitals um, uh, uh, on on ships, and so um, it's a lot of coordination. And the hope is that um, this will be enacted very quickly and implemented very quickly on the ground. Uh, but we will see what will come out of the Paris meeting today. But those things are. Um, rarely, um, you know, happen overnight. Uh, but of course, the the dire need of this aid should make it more urgent. Mm-hmm. Hiba Tibi in Ramallah, um, what do you think of all the, you know, the political considerations, uh, as uh, Marissa accurately described them, that are going into the creation of any kind of agreement on how to get more humanitarian aid into Gaza? Um, so unfortunately, for for so for instance, for me as as a representative of a humanitarian organization, I totally understand. The only thing that I understand is saving lives. All the politics, the war tactics, all this language, I honestly don't. Um, I don't have the capacity to understand or to comment on. But what we urge as an organization is to have. The ceasefire, of course, this is the ultimate request, is to have enough quantities of humanitarian assistance, not only to enter Gaza, but to a safe environment where we can 
practice the humanitarian distribution and actual aid that cannot happen under bombing. Um, that has been said, political discussions, war tactics, all discussions might take long time. We are way behind the, the way behind the moment where we can still negotiate or discuss. There are many people who are dying. And as you articulated in a in an amazing way, bombing is not is not going to be the top uh, uh, cause of, of death in Gaza, unfortunately. But hunger, thirst, uh, outspread of diseases is the it's what going and, and winter is on the door. Mm. The, the winter is on the door and this will just make at the door and that this just will make everything harsher and more difficult. Mm-hmm. Marissa, uh, Marissa Kurma, we only have about 30 seconds left. Do you think the United States, the Biden administration, uh, is doing enough, whether overtly or through back channels, to to push for some kind of uh, more significant pause to get aid into Gaza? I think the Biden administration is cognizant of how dire the situation is in Gaza, uh, beyond what um, we all see uh, through uh, footage and images. I think they also have um, access to information um, about how much worse it could be. They are um, doing what they can, um, and perhaps a lot more privately. So we only hope that this will um, uh, end in a way that focuses on saving human lives. Well, Marissa Kurma is director of the Middle East program at the Wilson Center. Marissa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Hiba Tibi, country director for Care International in the West Bank and Gaza. Hiba, thank you. Thank you so much, Magna. Thanks a lot. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.